Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, we're doing what we do periodically with the podcast or we're taking a break from our usual format because today was uh, Apple's big September event uh, at which they announced a new iPhone and new Apple Watch among other things uh, and I attended the event this morning and so we are recording in the hours following the event. Um, Aaron was watching from a distance, I was watching in person and so we're just going to talk through Apple's event today, uh, share our impressions. We obviously did something of a preview last week, so this is the the back end of that and, and kind of reviewing the announcements from today and uh, what we thought about those. So that will take up the entirety of this episode. We'll just go through the keynote in the order in which it happened. So we'll start out with the update and intro stuff, uh, go through the Apple Watch, and then talk about the iPhone uh, last. And that will be it for today's episode. So no question of the week, no no weekly pick, and so on. We'll be back, hopefully, to the usual format next week. Uh, so let's start at the beginning. Uh, the event started, as it usually does, with Tim Cook on stage, although uh, the first uh, little thing that happened before that was a, a brief carpool karaoke video with James Corden. Um, this is obviously a reference to the fact that Apple recently acquired the rights to feature uh, carpool karaoke uh, episodes as part of the standalone show that's spinning off from James Corden's show uh, and they will be released as part of Apple Music early next year and so we had Tim Cook and James Corden in a car um, singing to one of Tim Cook's favorite bands One Republic as well as uh, Leonard Skinner's Sweet Home Alabama um, and we found out Tim Cook's not a very good singer uh, and Pharrell <laughs> made a quick uh, cameo too. What did you make of all that Aaron? I don't know. Anytime you get celebrities and executives together, no matter who the company is, no matter the situation, there's just a level of awkwardness that kind of takes the shine off the fun of the idea. I mean, it was fun. It, you know, it, I couldn't imagine Steve Jobs having ever done that in his entire life. Yeah. But then again, he had weird moments on stage with you, too. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but when you mix celebrities and I should say when you mix entertainers with non-entertainers. Yes. That's what it is. It's really. just always yeah. a, there always a weird feeling, but it was, I don't know. I mean, luckily it was weird in an endearing way. Yeah. Like awkward in an endearing way. So I don't know. It yeah. was, it was fun, I guess. No, it was, it's a fun way to kind of start the event off. I remember, I think it was last year's developer conference where they had, was it Ty Burrell doing a, a sort of uh, pretending to organize some kind of right. big event or whatever, you know, they've done these kind of slightly cheesy videos from time to time. As some people saying, it kind of reinforces that, dad rock image that this stuff has to some extent you know it was very much that's in that right. vein I, I don't mind it maybe that's because i'm a dad maybe it's aimed at me but uh, <laughs> uh but anyway it was a fun way to start the show um there was some other stuff in the updates so we got an update on apple music it has 17 million subscribers now um i kind of did the math on that during the event and uh at ten dollars a month and obviously apple's average is probably slightly higher than that because there are family subscriptions but at ten dollars a month that gives you just over two billion dollars in revenue a year uh, and last year, Spotify had just under 2 billion euros in revenue. So uh, Apple's now getting very close with Apple Music to where Spotify's revenue is. Uh, and obviously, Apple's growing faster on the paid subscription side. So very interesting to watch that Apple might actually generate more revenue for all the talk that Apple's behind Spotify. That was right. interesting. But uh, lots of talk about uh, exclusives as well. 70 uh, releases that were first on Apple Music uh, was something else that was talked about. I think it's pretty clear that the Apple Music growth is going to be a slow burn. Yeah. And in fact, that was my experience with it personally. I was I did the three-month trial, and for whatever reason, it never really connected with our family. And then we decided to do it again, gosh, it was uh, you know about three months ago, maybe four mm -hmm. months ago, because 
I can't even remember why. I want to say there was maybe it was the, the Radiohead album was out, the new one. Okay, yeah. And so I was like, yeah, let's just let's fire up Apple Music again, and and then for whatever reason, it's actually been mostly my wife. She kind of fell in love with it this time when the first time around, it just didn't do anything for her, and so. Mm. And and now I don't think we're going to be, I don't think we're going to be stopping our subscription. I think this is going to be something we keep for a long time now. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I suspect that's true for many people. I mean, they're adding somewhere between twenty and thousand, thirty thousand new users a, a day. I think is what it is. The calculation that I did, and that number kind of goes up and down from time to time. And it's partly because they always report whole numbers, so it's probably a smoother curve than it looks like. But that's about the trend. And so you know, if it keeps going that way, you know, they're going to hit twenty million by the end of the year or before. Uh, and it will keep going. It will become you know, quite a significant business in its own right within Apple. Um, the App Store, there was a, an update there, 140 billion apps in total downloaded. You know, that, that curve continues to grow uh, in a pretty sort of uh, predictable fashion. Um, you know, they highlighted that they have twice the revenue of, quote, their nearest competitor, which obviously is Google Play. Um, talked about how many developers go iOS first, and many of them are iOS only. And that obviously introduced... Uh, Mr. Miyamoto from uh, Nintendo to talk about the Super Mario Runs game. Um, it's going to be the first time the Mario character has been on uh, on the iPhone. Was it just me, or did he say thanks, Steve, when Tim handed it off? I, oh, I, I maybe imagine. I, I haven't it. had a chance to go back and look, but I, I'm going to go back and look because I swear that's what he said. Yeah, it was, that was slightly awkward. That whole first part of that presentation where he was speaking English, but clearly not very comfortable yeah. in English. So I was glad that you had a translator for the rest. It's on par with your CEO celebrity thing at the beginning. People speaking a language other than their own often is is painful for them and becomes painful for everybody else. And it's nice that they allowed him to just be comfortable and have an interpreter doing doing the live interpretation there. But right. obviously, big deal for Apple to, to get Mario on on the uh, on the iPhone. You know, lots of people saying that they were going to pay up almost whatever Nintendo's charging because it sounds like it's going to be a premium app that's paid for up front. Um, the details haven't all emerged on that yet. But uh, interesting, you know, in a world where in-app purchases are absolutely the standard for gaming, um, that looks like Nintendo may be going in a different direction here. Yeah, I, I wonder two things from that part of the keynote. One is how long it will take before Nintendo decides to do in-app purchases, mm. especially because Pokemon Go, although it's not an, an original Nintendo product per se, is already doing in-app purchases. Right. I wonder how long it will be before Nintendo does it. And secondly, I wonder how long it will take before Nintendo goes into its back catalog, right, of yes. older games and Holds starts porting stuff. those over. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, Which I, a lot of people want will pay a lot of money for when the time comes. Yeah. And then, I mean, this looks like a natural sort of way to go on the iPhone, you know, sort of endless runner kind of game. Um, so it's a very familiar yeah. format, but then also a familiar character. And that's, that's a pretty good combination. It's kind of what made Pokemon Go work was it kind of combined some familiar elements um, and then obviously a familiar sort of characters apart from anything else. Um, the other thing from the kind of update section was education, and it was interesting. I mean, this, is, this has been a theme of something we talked about when we talked about Tim Cook's five years, but um, kind of social good and apples as a force for good in the world, you know, talking about education, this Connect Ed grant program and 114 schools that Apple supporting with, I think it was uh, Macs and iPads for 4,500 teachers, 50,000 iPads for students, Apple TVs for classrooms and so on. Um, you know, all of that, plus the Everyone Can Code program and the Swift Playgrounds app and so on as well. Um, you know, lots of lots of stuff around education. And I, th I feel like this is at least in part a response to the fact that, that Google Chromebooks have been doing very well in schools. 
Um, you know, they've kind of taken the shine off what has been Apple's pretty strong position in education for quite a long time. And the problem, of course, with Chromebooks is it's one product. It has to kind of fit all needs, and it doesn't really do that as well. And so I suspect Apple's playing to its strengths here in the fact that it has a portfolio of products across iPad and Mac and um, Apple TV and, and, and the software that goes with all of those uh, to try to say, you know, we have the end-to-end -end solution for education. And then obviously with Swift Playgrounds, obviously they have an app that's specifically designed for learning to code too. Yeah, it's, you know, I think it's underappreciated that there really isn't a, a keynote address or other big announcement that goes by where Apple doesn't at least take some time uh, to discuss its corporate social responsibility efforts. I mean, that's, it's, it's kind of standard now. In fact, I think these days it'd be surprising if Apple didn't, in some product announcement, you know, make a point of that. And, yeah, I think that's awesome. I think it clearly is being reinforced continually as part of Apple's culture. Yeah. And I think that's that's something I wish more companies would emulate. Absolutely. And the last thing, I guess, from the the updates was the iWork update, which was a bit unexpected because it's been yeah, surprising. Sort of largely neglected. And it wasn't sort of lots of new features. It was just uh, real-time collaboration and did a demo on stage, which was somewhat surprising. But, uh, you know, it clearly works, at least on in a demo, and, and we'll see how well it works in practice. I, I never use collaborative features, really, with, with um, any... Uh, document creation software that's largely because I, I'm self-employed and work largely by myself and do non-real-time collaboration where, I, where there is collaboration involved. But, um, you know, my kids, for example, one of our kids has recently been doing a lot of creative writing uh, in collaboration with a cousin, and they've been using uh, Google Docs and have a whole Google Drive with lots of files that they're working on simultaneously, and they'll get on FaceTime but use Google Docs. So they're using Apple devices and Apple communication software, but Google collaborative software, and it's partly because it simply isn't possible to do that with Apple product productivity software. Um, partly just that's kind of what they're used to from school, and this kind of reinforces the point about education, where there are certain things that kind of become standard in schools, and then kids tend to bring those home, and, and they become part of their habits at home as well. And so, I'm curious to see if if my daughter latches onto these collaborative features when they become available, and if that's something that she would even consider. I suspect that it won't be, but it'll be interesting to watch that. Yeah, I don't think so. Google, uh, you know, Google Docs has kind of taken over education. At least that's my experience anecdotally with my kids is that's where they tend to do most of their work. I think there's really the, the use case that they put on stage of a keynote file being collaboratively edited, I think will be 95% of the collaborative editing like circumstances where people will use this. It will be a keynote file because keynote is a, a production level app for mm -hmm. a lot of companies are using yeah. keynote as their primary presentation software yeah. and uh and so i could picture people collaboratively editing in keynote but in any other in any other area at least from a professional perspective they're going to be using other 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 software for yeah. for producing things like indesign or other things and yeah. or excel if they're working on really complicated spreadsheets and and so I think, yeah, it's it's really just going to, I mean, it was collaborative, they announced collaborative editing for iWork, but I think it's really just going to be collaborative editing for Keynote. Yeah. I'm, I'll be curious how well it works with the web browser. Yeah, me too, actually. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I can't remember if I've mentioned this before, but in my work with Apple as a client, uh, and they're among several big technology companies that are clients on, for my consulting business, uh, they use Keynote internally, but they use Excel and not numbers for spreadsheets, even at Apple. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah, telling, you know, it's uh, 
the, the keynote is the one that they really go heavy on. And I'm not sure about pages, hasn't really come up, but uh, I suspect that the office suite is, is fairly de facto standard even at Apple except for presentations. Right. All right, well, let's move on to the two new products. Um, Apple Watch Series 2, as it's called, um, and uh, the iPhone 7. So let's talk about the Apple Watch first. Uh, Tim Cook had a brief intro in which he talked about how uh, the Apple Watch had very quickly climbed to number two in worldwide watch sales after Rolex in 2015, obviously the number one smartwatch as well, uh, sort of positioning it as you know a fantastic success. Uh, obviously, that's something that's been debated fairly hotly over the last year and a half in terms of how you measure the Apple Watch and whether it has been a success or not. But clearly, today's announcements were about trying to get the momentum going again in terms of watch sales um, with new hardware that pairs with the Watch OS 3 that was previewed at WWDC back in June. It was Jeff Williams again that uh, that led this session. So Kevin Lynch, who kind of was a big part of the original watch launch, has sort of slowly faded into the background. And, and Jeff Williams, uh, who I think a lot of people see as Tim Cook's sort of heir, uh, potentially, um, was the one that really kind of led the presentation here and, and kind of talked through everything around the Apple Watch. Um, but it is, it's called Series 2, not Apple Watch 2. And so, again, Apple seems to be kind of steering away from sort of classic tech product naming and, and trying to veer a little closer perhaps to sort of luxury goods and jewelry as far as the naming is concerned. Um, some of the headlines, uh, so it's water resistant to 50 meters now. In, in practical terms, the Apple Watch was already pretty water resistant. I've swum with it several times, regularly take showers with it. Tim Cook talked early on about how he takes showers with his watch. You know, it was already very water resistant. I regularly run mine under the tap after a workout just to kind of clean it off. Um, but it's now officially, you know, water resistant at that higher level, 50 meters. Has this clever gimmick where the speaker pumps out the water at the end of your workout, um, but it makes it appropriate for swimming. And so there's a couple of new swimming features which I saw demoed in the hands-on area. Um, there's uh, a better processor uh, that's faster, as we expected and sort of talked about last week. A new GPU as well, uh, new display that's even brighter, brighter than any other Apple display. I think there's only one phone out there from Samsung that, that matches it in terms of brightness. Uh, it has a built-in GPS as well, which again was, was widely expected. Um, but in some ways the biggest changes to my mind are kind of the subtler ones in terms of refocusing of both the uh, features and the product line. So I want to get on and talk about that eventually too. But Aaron, what about all those new features that, that I just kind of ran through? Was there anything that kind of stood out to you then? Well, I. I mean, I don't think any of them were a huge surprise. I, I think the swimming one was one that nobody was really talking about before, but totally makes sense. I think that makes it even more competitive in the larger wearables category, not just in the watch category specifically. Um, there are even still today a lot of wearables that are very popular that are not appropriate for swimming as far as working out goes. And so I think that that's a nice thing. Um, I, you know, I think holding on to the Series 1 watch was not at all a surprise and the you know and the price cut that came along with it i mean the truth is they've been selling that you know the the original apple watch was selling at those prices anyway um yeah i think the thing that surprised me most when we talked about this last week is apple you know after two years of working on the watch didn't have any really dramatic changes to it in terms of its shape or or size or any of that any of those other sort of form factor things mm -hmm. And I think that says a few things about the way they're thinking about the watch. And this is kind of getting to what you were hinting at before just now. It, it seems clear that 
that watch is not a huge priority for them anymore. Like they see it as a valuable product and definitely worth their time, but it feels like it's now more akin to the Apple TV. Well, maybe not quite that far outside of their interest, but but heading that direction for sure, because it seems like after two years, they they would, it feels like their product designers, their industrial designers are busy elsewhere. Like, I don't know, say making a car. And, right. and Apple is Apple notoriously says no to a lot of things, and it kind of feels like with two years of the watch, they just kind of decided, you know what, this is this is not going to be an iPhone size hit for us. So, but it's definitely worth keeping around, and that's what this series two feels like to me is that Apple's decided this isn't worth a ton of attention, um, but it, but it is worth keeping because of all of it adds to our brand and to the ecosystem and everything else that goes along with it. So I don't know. I, you know, I wonder like, is series three going to look the same, be the same thickness, same size, you know, same dimensions or is, or is it going to get a big change at that point? I don't know. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that actually. It's a slightly different perspective from mine, but then I'll talk through my perspective and, and maybe they're more similar than I think they are. But I think, two things that were really interesting with regard to the watch announcements were a, a sort of double refocusing. And I think, you know, we've talked about the first of these a little bit already, which is, you know, when it launched, it was famously launched with the same kind of tripartite sort of uh, description as the iPhone. So it was, you know, communication device right. and timepiece um, and, you know, health and fitness tracking was the third element, the third leg of the stool, if you like. And, um, you know, of those three things, two of them have kind of faded into the background and the one has very much come into the foreground, which is about health and fitness. And it feels like that's been very much a response to, well, a couple of things. One is, I think, customer response. So Apple's responding to the fact that that's what the health and fitness is what people have latched onto. And so they've said, okay, you know, we've, we're finding a ready market here that's responding to this very positively. Let's double down on that and make it even better. And so there's the enhancements in watchOS 3, like sharing and so on. So you can now be competitive with your health stuff. Uh, you've got the wheelchair stuff. You've got the swimming stuff now um, with the new hardware. You've got um, the Nike partnership um, and then the Nike watch uh, options as well. Um, you know, really doubling down on that. And so the health and fitness stuff has really kind of come to the fore and the communications faded into the background. The timepiece side is still there. Um, notifications haven't really been talked about at all since the original launch, but it's a big part of why I still wear a watch and, and how I use it. But it, I think it's just either you get that and you find it useful or you don't and um, you don't worry about it. And there's not a lot of obvious ways to change the way that works. So I think they, they kind of crack that one out of the box, but it... It's not necessarily something that appeals to everybody. But the other thing that's faded into the background that wasn't part of that sort of three-legged stool but was very much part of the original presentation is apps. Uh, and I think in the original implementation, Apple was hoping that the watch, and, and they very much talked about this. Tim Cook, I remember talking about what I kind of refer to as Apple's playbook, but kind of had this set of four or five things that kind of characterized every new Apple product, uh, hardware product, and the app store was part of it. And it was clearly... Uh, something that Apple felt like they needed to have in the first watch and that, as we've talked about before, really hasn't worked out well. Um, and so apps have faded into the background. With watchOS 3, I was kind of expecting that they would re-emphasize apps again in this announcement today, and they really didn't. You know, Pokemon Go, yes, is on the watch now, and so it's a sort of second sort of Nintendo reference, although I guess it was the Niantic people they had on stage. But um, Pokemon Go is there now, and there was a fitness app that was demonstrated, but that was it. There was nothing beyond those right. two things about apps on the watch. 
And so it really is all about health and fitness. And so that's been a real refocusing. And to get back to the point you were just making, that means the opportunity, the addressable market for this thing is much narrower than if it was a broad new computing device. Um, you know, it's for the people that really care about health and fitness and, you know, people who would have been in the market for a Fitbit or some other device like that in the past. And so it's mostly about carving off a slice and a, and a bigger slice, given the sort of GPS and other stuff they added this time around, carving off a slice of that market rather than something bigger. I think, you know, with watchOS 3 and with the hardware upgrades and everything else, you know, there was, I guess there was the Sky uh, app that they showed briefly, and which was in the hands-on area too. I had a look at that and that, that performs very nicely. It's actually quite quite fun. Um, it's a bit awkward to try to hold your wrist up at just the right angle to see the horizon and so on, but it's a good concept and the performance is definitely there. So I do wonder if we'll see kind of a, a re-emergence of sort of version two of apps on the Apple Watch coming in the next few months. Um, but for now, it does feel like there's a narrow addressable opportunity, which kind of reinforces the point you're making about this isn't as big an opportunity as Apple originally thought. They've kind of tempered their expectations a little bit and now more focused about it. Um, I, I said that they'd refocus the Apple Watch in two ways. One is that set of features that I just talked about. The other is the product line, um, which had these three very clear divisions up front. So you had sport, watch, and edition. Uh, and that's largely disappeared this time around. So there's no sport yeah. anymore. Um, there is only the watch, series two, and watch series one. And then the ceramic version is actually the edition. Um, so if you look carefully at the press release, the ceramic one is described as watch edition, but it's now in the $1,200 range, not in the $15,000 range. So they've basically given up on the luxury side. Their headline pricing now is roughly where the original sport version was. Uh, and then it goes up from there. And this really wasn't covered well on stage, but the pricing is still tiered between the finishes. But they're now no longer described as sport and watch, but as just watch in different finishes. So the aluminium is the 369 or whatever it is. And then uh, the steel and, and uh, ceramic are, are sort of increments from there. Uh, but of course, the original watch has now dropped down to 269 as a starting point, and you can easily see them going below that with discounts and so on from retailers. Uh, but gets the GPU upgrade as well, which is interesting. Not GPU, CPU upgrade. So that was interesting. Uh, and they'll be out very soon at the same time, basically, as the, the new iPhone. So that's interesting as well. But, you know, refocusing of the product line, get rid of the luxury stuff. That's a distraction. Didn't work out well. They're kind of abandoning that. You've got the ceramic for people who want to have something a little nicer, a little more expensive. Um, and I mean, for all it's harder, when, when something does happen to ceramic, it shatters. It doesn't just scratch. <laughs> Uh, so it'd be interesting to see how they position that, but uh, that's clearly yeah. not one you're going to be playing basketball with or anything. Um, but yeah, interesting to see them refocus it. Very different focus now, uh, both in terms of the portfolio approach and the feature approach from the original watch. Yeah, well, it does. I mean, the vibe we got, you know, this time two years ago was that Apple was going after the high-end watch market, and they seem to have clearly abandoned that. And and that's even that's even another way that they have narrowed the market fit for yeah. this thing, right? I mean, this is now really a high-end wearable more than it is, you know, a, a fancy watch. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, you know, after two years, I think it became clear to them that they're not going to be getting people to stop buying Rolexes. Right. Because people buy Rolexes for very different reasons mm -hmm. than they buy mm -hmm. Apple Watches. In fact, yeah. the reality is, is most people that can afford either are going to own both. Right. And so... Right. And so, you know, as as time goes on, who's to say? I, I mean, the, we talked about this way early about the Apple Watch in the podcast that 
you know, the biggest limitation with it, I think, is actually screen size. It's the display that holds everything else back from a functional perspective. And there may be some big innovation yet to come where you really are having carrying a supercomputer on your wrist instead of in your pocket. And, and that, you know, I, I won't be surprised if the Apple Watch has the capacity to turn into that someday, as long as the display nut gets cracked where there's a different way to to view whatever, you know, the, the, the computer in your watch is delivering to you. But, but except for that one hurdle, um, I, you know, I don't think we're going to see much else coming out of the watch other than this sort of continual refinement. I won't be surprised if, you know, this time next year, the series three watch is a little bit thinner, um, you know, and maybe even they design different lugs so they can get more, you know, revenue from selling bands. But, Mm -hmm. but, you know, I, the, there are other things that have to change that have nothing to do with the watch directly before we can have a supercomputer on our wrist. Right. So I feel like the, the is, I don't want to say the fate is sealed as far as the watch is concerned, but it's got a pretty narrow market now, and I think we'll stay that way for a while. Yeah, and I, I wonder if we might eventually see sort of an hourglass emerge where, you know, the original anticipation was it would be very broad. It's now narrowed down, and over time, if, if the app thing, for example, does start to pan out the way they hope it will, it will broaden out again. Um, but, you know, that, that is something that's going to take time, and it certainly wasn't an emphasis today, so we'll see how that right. kind of evolves. Who knows what GPS will do that way? Yeah, so. yeah, who knows, yeah. I mean, it's not... GPS is not something I particularly care about, and I mentioned that on the podcast last week, but I'm not a runner, I'm a walker, and so it's fine for me to have my phone in my pocket. I like to be able to stay in touch with stuff while I'm walking as well. But, you know, I was talking to one of the reporters um, today, a guy called Rod Chester, who, who writes for some of the Australian news outlets. Um, he is a runner, uh, and he was saying, you know, I heard you say that on the podcast last week, but, you know, I'm a runner, I really do care about the GPS, and, and so that's a big deal for him, and so I'm sure it will be for a lot of other runners too, and the, the Nike tie-up right. is a great idea in that context. And and I thought it was an interesting theme, you know, between Nike, Hermes, that it wasn't there on stage, but was certainly mentioned, and then, um, you know, Nintendo and Niantic and so on, you know, the partnership thing is still a big deal for Apple, you know, that these partners fill in important gaps in terms of brand and functionality and ability to reach new segments that Apple can't reach itself. And I think that's going to continue to be really important when it comes to the watch, that a lot of the differentiation will end up being in, and the diversification of the portfolio will be through those partners. Um, you know, Hermes on the luxury end, Nike on the sports side, who knows what else we might see. But um, that's going to, I think, continue to be an important theme, just as all the developers and so on add a lot of value in software around the iPhone and iPad. See, I see the Nike thing really differently. I think it's okay. it's got a year max. I think I, I think that product is not going to go very far, last very long. You know, App, Apple's relationship with Nike over the years has been interesting because they've they've done a bunch of different products or efforts to try to to try to you know sort of synthesize their market, and uh, you haven't seen very many of them last very long. And I think it's going to be the same thing for the for the Nike edition of the watch. Mm-hmm. Get, okay. I, I think next year they're going to be done with it. Okay, oh, that's so. an interesting, good, good prediction. Something for us to come back to a year from sure. now, maybe. But uh, <laughs> right. you know, obviously, I mean, Nike abandoned its own fuel band stuff a while ago, uh, two years ago, I think, roughly, and basically laid off that whole team. But of course, Nike's uh, Nike's board and Apple's board are connected um, through Tim Cook, and uh, you know, there are 
these long-standing connections between the company. There have been other sort of collaborations around the Nike Plus brand in particular. Um, and so, yeah, I'm interested to see. This seems like a particularly good fit for the two. And obviously with Nike not having their own hardware, but still having the whole Nike Plus brand and everything else, the apps that have gone with that, this is now really nice hardware that could be part of that strategy too. So I'm probably a bit more optimistic about it, but it'll be interesting to watch which of us ends up being right a year. Okay. Since this is going on the record, I need to articulate why I see this this way then. Okay. Okay. I, I think the thing about the Nike thing is it's purely a fashion difference. I mean, there is no other really measurable difference between a regular Apple Watch with all the flexibility in terms of style and appearance versus the Nike one, you know, which is really just you're, you're buying it because of a particular look. And so if you really like that look, you know, with the fluorescent green and the varying shades of gray, I mean, that's kind of it. Right. Well, whereas yeah. if if you, I mean, granted, there are some software differences, yeah, but you know, apps are going to open that door wide to anybody, and you know, like tomorrow, somebody could put up an Apple Watch app that mimics most of the Nike approach to this. I mean, granted, it does it doesn't plug into the network, and the Nike network of runners is big, and there are a lot of people who like that, but. But again, that's just a software difference. It doesn't really merit a stylistic difference. In fact, of course, anybody who buys a regular Apple Watch is still going to be connected into the Nike like e ecosystem. And so it's really only style is the reason to buy this Nike edition. I don't think that's compelling enough. Whereas in contrast, the partnership with Hermes, style is what it's all about. And the brand matters. And that's what fashion is about. And and people and and there are going to be people who love those because of the uniqueness of the bands and and the style really connects with their identity. I just don't think there are that many people who care that strongly about having, you know, a stylist a a a, a style designed by Nike designers. Yeah, versus Hermes yeah. designers. And I think I think the software stuff actually is a bigger deal. Um, so, you know, I mean, the Hermes stuff gives you obviously some different bands, but it also gives you some unique watch faces and things that are only available with the Hermes editions. And so, um, you know, the Nike stuff does, it puts certain things front and center. It gives you complications that you don't get anywhere else. It gives you, but not just that, it's actually the whole watch face is designed around it too. And so I think for people that are really into running and like the Nike approach to tracking that kind of stuff and, and the kind of prompts and so on, um, you know, I think that could be a bit more compelling. But I totally respect what you're saying as well. It's I think just a valid viewpoint, and I really I couldn't say for certain which way it's going to go. I think you know what you say has a lot of merit. Yeah, we'll see a year from now. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, let's move on to arguably the main event, which was the iPhone Seven, and this was Phil Schiller's segment. So he, uh, he carried through pretty much the whole of this, and it was interesting to see them kind of carry over this element of the. WWDC structure where they kind of talked ahead of time about there are 10 major features. That was something that we, we talked about in relation to WWDC um, as well, that there was this kind of structure to it. So you kind of knew where you were and it was a way to not feel too overwhelmed by it. Um, but it was interesting. So the, the 10 major features were design, the home button, uh, water and dust resistance, the camera, display, audio, earpods, wireless, Apple Pay and performance. I think that's 10. I may have Maybe two of those were actually part of the same thing. It was hard to keep track um, with the numbering, but that was it. But it was interesting to think about what came first, which was design uh, in a year when famously there was no new design. That was the first thing. So I think they were very careful to kind of emphasize that there were design changes this year and that those are important. The home button, this was something that really only kind of emerged in the last couple of weeks as a possible change. And, and sure enough, it has changed. And we can talk about that. Water and dust resistance. Uh, cameras, obviously, you know, 
the home button, the water and dust resistance are interesting. I think cameras by far kind of the headline in terms of changes here, but there are also changes to, to the other things I mentioned, and we should certainly spend some good time talking about ear pods and, and wireless and, and everything else as well. Um, but Aaron, was there anything that particularly kind of stood out to you from the whole iPhone segment of the presentation? You know, if you remember back earlier in the summer when the rumors were starting to hit that there wasn't going to be a big physical change in the iPhone, I feel like everybody's largely forgotten that. I mean, the only thing that's really stayed the same is the rough dimensions, right? I mean, its shape is fundamentally the same of what it's been before. But they have the two new colors, the black and the jet black, which I think are pretty dang cool. I think I think the black, the regular black is more appealing than space gray ever was, for example. Um, and obviously all the internal changes are, are huge differences and just kind of reflect the way Apple tends to do things, which is it incrementally, but but can I say dramatically incrementally? Does that make yeah. sense? Like like you pulled it like they pull together a lot of refinements that collectively make a pretty big difference in the device. And I feel like that's what this was this time around. Mm. I mean, obviously there are some big changes like the psychic camera and the plus and the seven plus and and the home button being changed, the waterproofing, the headphone jack, um, those are pretty big physical changes. But a lot of the other things, they're, they're incremental, but collectively, man, they make such a huge difference. Like, for example, I think the A10 Fusion chip is just a brilliant approach to to, uh, to battery, to power conservation. You know, having the two low power cores like they announced. So that way, you know, when your iPhone isn't doing anything that's especially processor intensive, it can use parts of the chip that are designed to be low power. I mean, two hours of battery life added to the, to the regular size iPhone and an hour added to the plus size iPhone, it, that is a big deal. And, and Apple usually measures their battery life changes conservatively, so I won't be surprised if, if people are talking about the very measurable difference they see. I think heavy iPhone users are going to be the ones talking about how great the difference is in their battery life. Yeah, especially if the heavy use is around less power-intensive applications. Exactly, because they're, you know, I mean, if you have your phone out and your screen on, you're obviously going to be using power, but sending a text message, which I think a lot of the heavy iPhone users out there do, you know, that's not that's not processor-intensive. Mm-hmm. And and I, I, can see, I, I can see that making a huge difference. So when I talk about, like, you know, dramatic yet incremental improvements, that's kind of what this feels like, the, the, the you know... The, the sum of it all is, is it, it, you know, the aggregate is bigger than the sum of the parts or however you say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I feel a bit differently about the design thing, but perhaps that's because I've been hammered at by reporters over the last couple of hours about how the design isn't <laughs> that different and so on. But, you know, I think the jet black finish in particular is, you know, is the conspicuous consumption option, you know, for people yep. who buy a new one because they want it to be distinct from the yeah. old one and want to show off the fact that they've got the latest and greatest. You know, the Jet Black absolutely does that for them. Um, but obviously anybody who buys a 7 Plus with the dual cameras, that will look quite different from the back anyway, um, yeah. even if the front looks roughly the same. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a good new option. It's interesting that Jet Black, I think, is only available in the higher storage tier, so that would be a more expensive phone. Well, that points um, to the conspicuous kind of, consumption well, exactly. part you're Reinf- talking about. Reinforces the conspicuous consumption point. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, it, it, from the front, it, they all look very similar to how they've looked in the past. It's really the back that will look different. But uh, and so, you know, as we kind of said, I think last time around, if you put a case on the thing, it's not going to matter that much, um, except for on the seven plus uh, with the dual cameras. But 
I think it was important for them to put design up front to kind of emphasize, okay, maybe the shape and size is very similar, but um, there are some important differences still. But, um, you know, the home button's interesting, and I, I had a chance to kind of play around with the new home button in the demo area. And I, I have a Magic Touchpad at home trackpad, um, which, you know, uses this. And we've talked about yours in the past. When you first got yours, I remember you did a quick sort of review of it for us. Um, you know, on that device, it really feels like the movement is still there. Um, on the new home button, it doesn't. The thing feels very rigid. Really? And there That's is feedback, um, but it very much feels like it's feedback and not like you're actually moving anything. It, it feels very much like the thing is not moving, which it isn't. Um, and then there's this taptic feedback. Um, so that's going to be an interesting thing to get used to. It's because, um, you know, at the moment, and, and they kind of made a lot of this during the keynote, that the, the home button gets used for a lot of different stuff. And some of it's about pressing it and some of it's about just tapping it. So reachability, for example, is a double tap on it. Uh, and then multitasking is a double press. Well, a double press and a double tap are less different from than they were in the past. Uh, I mean, you still have to push harder to do a double press, but um, it doesn't actually depress at all. And so... There are going to be some interesting subtle differences there. I wonder if this is going to be something that's going to take a while for people to get used to. It does feel different. It's not the same as a magic trackpad in terms of the feel and, and its sort of mimicking of real movement. Um, so that's that's worth pointing out because that obviously didn't come through very clearly yeah. in the in the keynote. Um, but you know, this the, the other interesting thing is that the Taptic engine is now going to be available to developers. And there, there was a game that they were demoing in the hands-on area where some kind of war game where you can shoot various different kinds of guns in a sort of uh, battle situation uh, but you kind of would hold down the type of gun that you wanted to use in order to shoot it and as you shot it there was some feedback um, and then as it hit its target there was more feedback sort of explosion uh, stuff would happen and, and there would be this sort of vibrational feedback and so you can easily see this is going to be a really interesting new layer of interactivity for games and that kind of thing where you yeah, feel cool. more immersive and so on and so we're obviously it hasn't been announced until now, so it's going to take a few months for most developers, except for those that were kind of invited to preview it, um, to get stuff ready. But, that, you know, obviously in gaming is an obvious area where this could be the case, but there's lots of other interesting stuff that could happen too, um, you know, around notifications and, and having specific sort of patterns for notifications that are different than just buzzing uh, for people that don't wear a watch, for example. Um, you know, there's other stuff that could be done, and I'm very interested to see and how that could be used by, by developers going forward. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, one of the things that this has got me thinking about is with all the changes and this idea of adding and all these improvements, which, like I said, uh, you know, have led to a pretty dramatic change in the iPhone. It makes me wonder what this supposed iPhone 8 massive redesign that's been rumored would be about. I mean, what would the next one be like? Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, we've talked about this idea before that there really aren't that many ways where where smartphones can improve in a way that dramatically influences people's lives. It's so mature as a platform. Cameras is one of those things, and Apple took a huge bite off of that this time. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, it's hard, I, I guess I have a harder time imagining what they might do with a supposed iPhone 8 redesign. I, I say that in part because a colleague just was in my office earlier, and I was kind of reviewing the news of the day with Apple. And... He's one of those original iPhone 6 users that we've predicted will jump on this upgrade. Right. And, uh, you know, he said, boy, I don't know. I mean, this iPhone 8 is supposed to be a big deal. And that got me wondering, what in the world could it be? Yeah. That would that's be such a dramatic and worthwhile one that's that yeah. much better than the iPhone 7. 
Yeah, the obvious things, right, that people have talked about are the home button and the bezels. So the bezels go away, or at least get a lot smaller, and then the home button goes away. Um, and so this shift to a taptic home button um, is a possible first step towards eliminating the home button altogether, where you just kind of tap on the screen right. in a certain spot, for example, and you get the same sort of feedback. That would be an obvious first step in that direction. And then obviously once you remove the home button, then you can get rid of the bottom bezel uh, and stretch the screen out there. And then with the jet black finish now, you know, it's supposed to sort of blend in, I guess, between the frame and the glass. And so you wonder, you know, are there other things that you can do once you eliminate or make the bezels significantly smaller? Um, there is now a speaker um, that's basically where the earpiece is uh, at the top of the device. And so... Right. Um, you know, that would make that hard to eliminate entirely, but you can make the top bezel quite a bit smaller and largely eliminate the bottom one. Um, so those are things that have been talked about. Once you do that, obviously you can change other design elements as well so that you can still make it easy to hold and, and everything else still works as it has in the past. But um, they've been mostly, uh, the, the rumors have been about the physical design of the device, and this is supposedly why we kept this design this year was because there's this bigger change that wasn't yet quite ready and perhaps they wanted to build up to it a little bit with this year's changes but that's the obvious stuff but you know who knows what else might come down the line um you could see the dual cameras making their way down into the smaller device for example that that's going to be an interesting one i, I mean it took two years to get optical image stabilization mm -hmm. into the smaller iphone yeah and that feels like it should have been easier than cramming in a whole second camera right yeah. into the smaller space mm -hmm. and that's so that one i think has me more curious than anything else about next year's phone yeah um i just can't imagine carrying around the plus size phone it just it feels just way too big to me mm -hmm. but uh what they showed off today with the dual cameras is really impressive in fact we talked about this idea last week how you know there are rumors that apple and i think it was nine to five mac that that put up an article about how apple's going to go after dslrs with this with this version of the iphone and mm. I mean, obviously that wasn't really true, but it was a little bit true. And we talked about how they might accomplish that. And one of the things we talked about was the idea that they won't do it with hardware, but rather they'll do it with a combination of software and silicon. And that right. that proved to be the case here with the Boca, you know, and the blurred, you know, the portrait mode where they can make it feel like there's more depth of field, even though it's really not happening in terms of, you know, what's going on in the actual lens and when the light hits the sensor. And so... Uh, I thought that was really impressive work. It surprised me, though, that that's not coming until October or whenever it is, right? That it's not ready to go now. Um, and yet Apple felt confident enough to 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 talk it up during the during the presentation. Hmm. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Um, the camera's obviously a headline here, as I said earlier. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's worth talking about those in more depth. I, by the way, I took several videos during the hands-on, which I will try to post to YouTube and then link to from um, from the show notes. I, I posted two of the videos earlier to um, to Twitter. Um, one video that I'll mention before I forget because it actually relates to something we already talked about, which is the Apple Watch. Uh, have a look at this demo of how the swimming workout works because it's really quite clever. Um, and it relates to a couple of different things, one of which is... Um, the fact that you've got a screen underwater, which is obviously receiving all kinds of pressure from all around all the time, and, and it relates also to the, the way that the right. uh, water gets expelled. Uh, and so I won't try to describe it here, just watch the demo video, but it's really quite clever where the screen basically locks up while you're in one of these underwater, you know, a pool swim workout. 
uh, and then you have a, a way to unlock it with a digital crown um, by rotating it and it unlocks it and then expels the water from through the speakers. So oh, that's it's cool. quite, quite smart. But anyway, um, I did take a demo of the Zoom um, with the camera and so I'll post that too. But, uh, you know, basically the two cameras, one of the ways they're used is that one is the standard sort of camera, um, which is, uh, you know, just gives you the standard sort of view that you're used to, uh, which is, I guess, a 28 millimeter lens. And then the other is a 56 millimeter lens. So it's twice, uh, twice the size in that sense. Um, and but it's the telephoto lens. And so there's this little button on the screen that you touch that says 1x by default. And as you tap it, it turns to 2x. And it basically switches to the telephoto lens. Um, and it's like a zoom effect. And it's really quite impressive. And again, this is what I took the video of. But then you can also just drag that number across as well to increments in between those two and then well beyond 2x all the way up to 10x as well. And from 2 to 10x, it's just software. So it's the same as it always has been, where it's basically a loss in resolution and you're kind of cropping the picture, essentially. Right. Um, but because the camera is that much closer in to start with, um, the quality is improved quite significantly. So, uh, you know, it's very effective. Um, and so that's, that's a really interesting angle. And then, of course, there's this whole depth effect. And they weren't demoing that because it's not quite ready yet. Um, and that was an interesting sort of thing for an Apple keynote to have a feature that's demoed as part of the new hardware release, but actually has to wait for a month or so until the software that makes it work is available. Um, makes you wonder, by the way, why. Um, and I wonder if the, the kind of zoom thing for the dual cameras, they, they kind of started to feel as the event approached that it wasn't going to be quite enough um, and that they needed to have something else. And so they, they set them on this whole bokeh task and, um, and it just wasn't ready in time. And that's why they're shipping it as a software upgrade in October. Um, yeah. But it, it's really well, interesting. And they, they, again, they weren't demoing it, but they had some of the images that you could look at. And again, I, I took another demo video where you can see the difference between uh, an image with that effect on and off. And it's quite significant. It seems to work quite well. Well, Phil Schiller described that as extra credit, right, right? <laughs> when he introduced it. Yeah. I, you know, I, I mean, without going into any detail, it, you know, having caught in a glimpse here and there of the way Apple works when it comes to these kinds of things, it really truly could have been one enterprising engineer who said, I think I can pull this off. Mm. And his manager said, okay, go give it a shot. You know, he, he banged his head on it for a little while and said, I can do this, but I need another month. Right. And he was able to impress the executives sufficient for them to pull the trigger on it. Um, you know, that's, it's funny because we talk about Apple as being this company that, you know, plans out these products years in advance and, you know, they've probably got the iPhone 11, right, in product development <laughs> somewhere. And yet a lot of this stuff, especially software stuff, it kind of comes, I mean, I don't want to say it comes together last minute because that's not necessarily true, but they do make decisions last minute mm -hmm. about what they decide to ship and what they yep. keep back. Yep. And, uh, I think this was one of those that was sort of on the bubble mm. and, uh, and they decided it was worth promoting anyway. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And so let's talk about the cameras a bit more. So obviously there's a difference, a fairly significant difference between the 7 and 7 Plus, as we've already alluded to. Optical image stabilizations in all of them, uh, longer exposures, larger aperture, new lenses, um, faster, more energy efficient. Now four LEDs in the flash, uh, cleverer in terms of flicker sensoring, you know, more light generated, 
lots of stuff. And I thought it was very important that Phil Schiller talked about all that, which is common to both the models, before he went on to talk about the dual cameras. This was clearly an attempt right. to say, you're not getting gypped if you're getting the iPhone 7. You know, this is still right. a significant upgrade. It's just that the 7 Plus is even better. And it was important that they kind of described it in that way, because otherwise there's, there would have been a feeling that if you were going with a smaller device, you were somehow missing out in a big way and not getting much of an upgrade. But there is still this very significant difference. And unlike OIS, which you know two years ago was a difference between the phones, but which many people might not have even noticed, you know, this is physical difference between the phones on the outside. It's very visible. Um, and you know there are some key features that simply won't be available if you don't have the larger device. So as an owner of a smaller device, how do you feel about all this? I still feel left out. I mean, I know that I, you know, and granted, I'm going to wait till next year anyway before I upgrade my phone. But the, the, you know, the the dual camera just feels like it could be useful in so many circumstances. You know, every once in a while, my wife pulls out her phone to take a picture and and does the 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 software zoom, hmm. and I just shake my head and I'm like, why bother? <laughs> but uh, but the idea of getting a two x optical zoom, you know. It, they sh they showed enough both in the in the demo and have posted images on the website to give you appreciation of the difference. That is a big difference, mm -hmm. and it, it really zoom is one of the last areas where smartphones are behind when it comes to uh, you know better more expensive cameras. Yeah. And uh, and the 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 this is a this is not a trivial step into that space where you know there's an actual optical zoom that that really works and and leads to a, a very nice picture being taken mm -hmm. i think yeah. that's awesome and i'm sad that i i i'm not optimistic that it's the sort of thing that apple can cram into a smaller phone just a year from now mm. and so i i think you know it's going to be two years from now before it gets into the smaller phone i'd love to be wrong on this but that's yeah. i guess my prediction yeah, who knows? I mean, with the bigger changes they'll be making to the design next year, possibly they can find some way to cram it in. But um, yeah, that's true. We'll see. Um, yeah, one thing I wonder about—it just occurred to me, and I, I didn't get a chance. I didn't because it just occurred to me. I didn't ask about it earlier, but I don't know if the both lenses are available for video. Because one interesting thing with cropping, um, you know, the software zoom uh, previously is if you take a 4K video and zoom on that, you can still get an HD video cropped, basically. So. Uh, if you combine the optical telephoto zoom with 4K video and then still software zoomed on that, you yeah, can still end wow. up with an HD quality video that's significantly closer than what you have now. And I just don't know if the telephoto lens is available to the video app too, but um, that's worth thinking about. But uh, That's an exciting yeah, thought for like kids' soccer games. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I, I, one of my kids had a sort of graduation a few months ago um, and we were sitting reasonably close, but not close enough that you could really see things well. And it occurred to me partway through trying to film some of this that if I just switched to 4K and then zoomed slightly on the screen, I'd still get a very high quality video out of it. And so I did that for the second half of this thing. And it was, you know, the results were very good. And so, you know, multiply that by two with a 56 millimeter lens instead, and suddenly you could get a fairly significant improvement. Yeah. Um, so there's a whole bunch of other stuff, displays, wider color gamut and stuff like that, and the Instagram on stage to talk about that. Uh, second speaker, so you now get a stereo speaker experience. Um, but And then you know, Apple Pay and Falica in, in Japan and so on, and then performance, which maybe we'll come back to. But obviously the other big headline ahead of time, and, and it proved to be an important area of focus during the event, was what's happening to the headphone jack. So three and a half millimeter jack is gone. 
and is replaced by not one, but two things, and that's very important, I think. So lightning is the first of those. So the default option now is, is wired with lightning, and then the second is wireless. And, and specifically, it wasn't described as Bluetooth, and that's important, and we should talk about that. Um, but I think what they did here was pretty smart, where um, they aren't, they, they talked about the glorious wireless future that awaits us all, yeah. um, but they didn't try to make the jump there in one go. Um, right. You know, they had a Johnny Ive video where he talked about, you know, we believe in a wireless future, a future where all of your devices intuitively connect. But at the same time, that's not the thing that's going to ship in the box. What's going to ship in the box is lightning earpods and an adapter, which basically neutralizes most of the concerns that people had about this change. You know, you'll get earpods that will be equivalent to what you've had in the box before. And for everything else you might own, um, there is the adapter. And yes, you might lose the adapter and so on, but you're not paying for it. And it'll mean that anything that you have works fine. Um, and so I think they kind of neutralized a lot of the potential problems. You know, this could have been seen as a downgrade. I think at least it probably for most people won't be seen as that. The question is just, can they make it be seen as an upgrade? Um, and they talked up the benefits of Lightning. And we had some interesting Twitter conversations uh, this week with Mark Miller, who listens to the podcast. He kind of had a, a tweet storm in which he talked about some possible things that could be done with Lightning. What surprised me was how little benefit they really kind of talked about with Lightning. Um, yeah. you know, Phil Schiller talked about it in theory, but there were very few specific benefits um, to to the version of Lightning earpods that they've actually introduced. They talked about a JBL workout uh, earbuds um, that already use Lightning and so on, but they really didn't talk about um, how Lightning was better uh, out of the box than, than the three and a half millimeter jack is. So I thought that was a bit surprising. I thought we might get a Siri button or something else that might um, use noise cancellation and so on for really good voice recognition, even when your phone's in your pocket. None of that. Um, you know, there is the power element of Lightning, obviously, but that was there already uh, for third-party headphones. Doesn't really matter for Apple's own earpods. Um, what's interesting, though, of course, is the wireless side and these AirPods that we're getting, and and this W1 chip that powers it all. And uh, I posted a demo video on Twitter of uh, the wireless earpods and. Uh, you know, I, it was one of two demo videos that I posted earlier and uh, didn't kind of think much of it. And then I was, I went from the hands-on area to talking to a bunch of uh, reporters and stuff. And the whole time I was talking to reporters, my my watch was buzzing and I couldn't figure out why. I couldn't really look at it then. And when I came out of those uh, interviews, I finally looked at my watch and what was going on. And it was lots of responses to this video that I posted. And the video, that tweet with the video in it has... 424 retweets and 331 likes at this point. Wow. And this is, you know, I t tweeted this, what, two hours ago, roughly. Um, you know, and I've had, I don't know how many responses to it, but, uh, and half the responses are, wow, I need this now, but get me one, um, there goes my money, you know, that kind of stuff. And the other half right. is like, this is ridiculous, classic Apple. <laughs> it's very <laughs> divisive in that sense. But there's a good number of people that are saying, this is fantastic. And so I think that's what's particularly smart about the way Apple did this is one, uh, they, they showcase the future and you know that video is a great encapsulation of you know, the benefits of Apple's approach here and what we can all look forward to in the long term, if not the short term. Uh, and at the same time, they gave people a much more pedestrian route into the future where what ships in the box, 
will basically give you everything that you've had until now with a few benefits and it'll be future proof and all the rest of it. And so I think, you know, given this, this was probably the highest risk part of the changes to the iPhone this time around, I think they really managed it quite well. Well, and you know, I, I, I think the reason that they didn't do much with the lightning earpods was because it sort of undercuts the story of how the future is wireless. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they if they had spent engineering time and effort into making the th- the the lightning earpods that much better, in exciting ways, it sort of says wireless is our future. But you know, here's all the cool stuff we can do with wired earpods. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I do think that. I, but you're right, though. They tried to make that as trivial of a switch as possible. I mean, not only do they include the adapter in the box, and there are going to be a lot of those that go unused because people are going to be moving to Bluetooth, but. Uh, but they also, if you need to buy a replacement, it's a $9 adapter from Apple. I cannot remember if they've ever had an adapter or dongle that was that cheap. Right. Right. And, uh, and, and I mean, it's got lighting built in, so it's not like it's, you know, just dumb, you know, wiring inside. It takes an actual chipset inside for this to work. And, and, uh, and yet Apple's pricing it at $9. I think they're doing that to just sort of say, we want this to be as painless as possible of a transition. Right. Um, I, you know, I'm of two minds about the AirPods. Uh, they are pretty dang expensive, mm-hmm. but uh, all that they're able to accomplish with that w, W1 chip is pretty cool stuff. You take mm-hmm. it out of your ear and the music automatically stops. You know, you don't have to tap a button. You just tap anywhere on, on an earphone and uh, on one of the, you know, AirPods and, and it'll bring up Siri uh, you know, these are really cool advanced things. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that I'll be able to bring myself to pay $160 for them, but I right. have no doubt there will be a lot of people that will pay for it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean, just to sort of to go back to this demo video that I posted, like I said, it had 300 retweets, whatever it was. I posted a video at essentially the same time of the Zoom feature, so the going from 1x to 2x on the phone. Uh, that has about 11 retweets. Uh, so it just gives <laughs> yeah. you some sense of kind of the pairing and the kind of intuitiveness and the simplicity of it, you know, right. is very compelling to people, especially people who are used to using Bluetooth and have many frustrations with it. And that's worth talking about, I think, briefly, that, you know, here Apple took Bluetooth, an existing standard, and tweaked it a little bit um, rather than, you know, trying to evolve Bluetooth itself. And in the process, you know, solved a lot of the pain points that people have with yep. this stuff. Um, and I've, again, been approached by reporters this afternoon sort of saying, oh, well, you know, isn't this anti-standard and all the rest of it? And it's like, well, these phones still work with every other Bluetooth accessory you've ever had uh, in exactly the same way they always have. It just will work better if you have one of these things that's optimized and designed for it. The big question is just, does anybody other than Apple and Beats actually make headphones and earbuds and so on that work with this and take advantage of the W1 chip? And how long does that take? Um, but, you know, this is kind of classic Apple approach. You know, you take the bits of the standards that work, you add your own special source to it, and you create something that's tightly integrated between hardware and software and services and, and just works out of the box. And it's very that's clever. Right. And, um, you know, that was a great demo. Um, but, you know, I, I put the ear pods in my ears. They, they, you know, audio sounded great, even in what was a very crowded and noisy hands-on area. Um, you take one of them out of your ear and the audio stops playing. You put it back in your ear again and it starts playing again. I'd argue that it probably should only happen if you take both of them out of your ears, because quite regularly you'll take one out just to hear background noise while you still want to hear the audio, but you yeah. know, maybe that's something you can change in the settings. But um, one thing that's worth noting, though, is these they basically look like the existing ear pods with the cables cut off. 
Um, that's almost exactly what they look like. Slightly thicker because you've got a microphone and stuff in there. Um, but that's the look. And in terms of fit in your ear, they work the same way as they do right now. And uh, that's not the case for most Bluetooth earbuds. Most Bluetooth earbuds work with some kind of rubbery stuff in the ear to really hold them in well. They often have some kind of loop that goes over your ear or some other way to hold them in place. And so, you know, these earpods, the AirPods are clearly designed as um, headsets for talking because both of them work as, you know, Bluetooth headsets for talking because they have the little thing that extends down your, your jawline. Um, they're clearly not designed for heavy exercise. You know, if you're running on a treadmill or something like that, these things will probably quite quickly fall out. Uh, and so the, the Beats stuff obviously is supposed to help with that somewhat, but we're going to need some, some similar technology that works in something that, that fits in your ear more snugly, in more customized fashion, um, if this stuff is really going to kind of meet all the needs that Bluetooth earbuds do today. Yeah, there's going to be some enterprising company that figures out a little, you know, rubberized thing that you slide up the cylinder mm. and that you can like swing over your ears so they stay in yours for working out. Yeah. I, I I can't keep the regular ear pods in my ears when I run, right. and uh, they I always have the one on whatever reason it's the one on the right hand side. It just always huh. bounces out. And I, granted, I don't know how much that has to do with the cable tugging, you know, as I run. Right, and maybe that's yeah. part of the reason. But mm -hmm. I, I I wouldn't go for a run very confidently with uh, the same shape of headphone right. in my ears right. as, as yeah. these are. Yeah, no, absolutely, that makes sense. Um, we're kind of running out of time here. We don't want to go over an hour, but. Um, the performance is worth mentioning briefly, and, and Apple tends not to speak in sort of uh, absolute terms. They speak in relative terms here, but it was interesting to hear them comparing it both to the A9 and the A8. There was a lot of emphasis around the two-year upgrade, and this is something that I've been talking about over the last few days in a piece that I wrote right. last week. That's the cycle on which most people upgrade is two years, and so that's the comparison you need to make. And the point here was that the A10 Fusion chip is two times faster than the A8 from two years ago. It's 40% faster than last year's, but two times faster than the one that most people are going to be upgrading from. The, the GPU is three times as fast as, as the A8, uh, and only 50% faster than last year. And the battery life is going to be significantly better from a two-year perspective as well. You know, that's the, tr that's the comparison a lot of people are going to be making. It was interesting to hear Apple kind of highlight that comparison in the presentation as well. Although they also talked up the iPhone upgrade program that allows you to upgrade every year. So they clearly try and play both sides there. Yeah, doubling the speed in two years blows me away. I mean, especially because the A series platform is pretty mature by this point. Right. Mm -hmm. I I I I wonder how long Apple's going to be able to keep it up. Yeah. Because it's pretty yeah. impressive. No. Especially because they don't get the benefit of Moore's law, right? The way that Intel had for two decades. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we're we're hitting like such you know such small transistor size measures. In in terms of the manufacturing technology, that mm. these are not these are not easy gains, right? right? I mean, relatively speaking, like Moore's law is kind yeah. of petering out now, and yet Apple is still just hitting it out of the park. Which each mm -hmm. with each new A series chip, it's yeah. it's amazing. I yeah, I don't know much about this, but it, it, making these comparisons that we've just that I've just mentioned, it it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's probably a lot more we could talk about. We could talk about storage tiers. We could talk about pricing. We could talk about lots of other stuff. But I think we'll leave it there for now. An hour is probably plenty for most of you. So thank you for joining us. Um, again, we've recorded this in the hours after the event. So I'm sitting in a hotel room and not using my normal high-quality microphone. So apologies if the audio quality is a little less than you're used to. But 
Uh, again, we should be back to our usual format and more diverse subject matter next week. But thanks for being with us. We'll post some links, including to those videos that I mentioned, uh, on the website at podcast.beyonddevices. And uh, that URL, by the way, is always in the uh, in the description for every podcast episode. So if you're not sure what I mean by podcast.beyonddevices, just scroll down in the description for the episode and you'll see it right there written out uh, in case you want to visit the site. Uh, thanks very much again, and we'll be with you again next week.